Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 94. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, and I'm so glad to be in your earbuds today. Now, today on the podcast, I am so excited to basically rectify a long overdue blind spot of mine. We talk a lot about privilege and power on this podcast And one of the hidden privileges that's finally starting to get a lot more attention these days and has finally come on my radar after I've basically been blind to this privilege for the majority of my life has to do with weight, like W-E-I-G-H-T, weight at work especially, but in life in general. It's known as thin privilege. And I actually like this definition that I stumbled upon by journalist Alana Schetzer in a New Zealand publication of all things. I'll link to it below. But here's how she described thin privilege. Quote, the thin in thin privilege is not about being supermodel skinny, but being at a weight that means you're not subjected to judgment and harassment from strangers. It means you can go into almost any clothing shop and find something that'll fit. You can eat a hamburger in public without people clearly judging your decision. You can wear something figure-hugging without people snickering at you. And there's a lot of time and energy and effort that I feel like goes into managing your perceived weight or managing just other people's expectation when you don't have thin privilege. So I've been, as someone who's relatively thin myself, sort of going through life, going through my everyday, going through my career path, not necessarily taking into account the hidden privileges that come with being able to throw just about anything on and head out the door without thinking too much about it. And that doesn't even begin to unravel the layers of thin privilege that impact your career choices, the very workforce options that are available to me without judgment, without discrimination in a way that might not be available to folks of a different weight. So today, we really want to look at this issue of weight at work and thin privilege as it relates to the workforce economics of it and and the injustice inherent in a lot of the discrimination that takes place in the interview process, in the job hunting process, in the promotion process, when you're perceived to be of a larger or heavier weight than what others deem appropriate. And you'll probably hear me stumble over my words a few times on today's episode because You know, I talk a lot about injustice as it relates to gender and as it relates to race and class and even LGBTQ status and and sexual orientation and, and gender identity. I haven't really talked that much about thin privilege. I haven't really figured out the right vernacular to use when describing weight at work. And so this for me, as I mentioned at the top, is kind of an overdue Uh, opportunity to rectify a blind spot of my own. And if you feel like you haven't really thought about how 
thin privilege might be impacting your life or how your perceived weight might be impacting your career prospects. This is a good opportunity to really spread the word about how much weight at work is actually a women's issue. And I don't want to preempt our interview any further than that because joining me here on the podcast today is an absolute rock star, an expert who's going to help us break this down from both economics and legal standpoint. I'm thrilled to have Jennifer Bennett Chanel, an associate professor of law at Vanderbilt University, joining me on the podcast today as her research is focused on the effects of obesity in the labor market and how the legal system can address those effects. Other current research she's doing focuses on the employment effects of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the amendments made to the Americans with Disabilities Act back in 2008. Before joining Vanderbilt as a professor, Chanel was the first graduate of the PhD program there in law and economics. She also previously clerked for Judge John Tinder. She earned her A.B. in economics and history at Harvard before earning that J.D. and Ph.D. we mentioned in law and economics at Vanderbilt Law School. In other words, she's got a lot of experience in direct research, but also looking at the macroeconomic trends that impact how people of different weights experience our workforce and might even experience different labor or workforce outcomes. Professor Schnall, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. Of course. Glad to be here. Looking at weight and gender seems to be something that's come up in your research. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field of study and and what kind of findings you've had in your research thus far? Well, I work on gender discrimination. And quite honestly, when I grew up, I grew up dancing, I grew up in ballet, and I knew firsthand there just how big of a deal weight is and how big of a deal weight is for women in a way that it's just really not such a big deal for men. And so when I was in graduate school and thinking about what I wanted to do my dissertation on, and I knew that I was interested in gender-related topics, I started thinking a lot about weight discrimination. When I got into it, I was thinking about weight, not just from a gender perspective, but from a health perspective too. Look, we hear a lot on the news about how weight is so bad for your health and you know, we'd all be better off if we lost weight. And so I was really open to when I finally found data that I could analyze that had both weight and labor market outcomes, was really open to what possibilities might be there. You know, I, I wasn't sure if just sort of an overview of the economics research that existed prior to mine, economists knew that overweight and particularly obese workers. And when I say obese, I mean the medical classification of obese, which means that you have a body mass index um, over 30. Economists knew that overweight and obese workers earned less than non-overweight and non-obese workers. And so the question really is why? Is it because they're not as productive because of their weight? They miss more work. They can't do certain tasks. Or is it really what economists would call taste-based discrimination? And by taste-based discrimination, economists simply mean, I just don't like overweight or I don't like looking at overweight and obese people. Right. And economists had seen in the data before that the disparity in wages and employment for overweight and obese people tended to be worse for women than for men. But, you know, the problem is always in this area of research is there's not that much data that has both health 
metrics and labor market outcomes. So we have a lot of good data out there that where you can analyze people's health outcomes and health metrics and a lot of good data on employment and wages, but they're not interconnected. And you really have to do some work matching data sets to be able to do both. And so that was my real contribution is being able to match data sets to analyze both health outcomes and labor market outcomes simultaneously. And then as I matched a third data set that actually for your occupation gives a whole host of characteristics or things that are important to that occupation. And so from there, I was able to examine, you know, in the occupations where obese workers are doing particularly poorly, what kind of jobs are those? And vice versa, if there are occupations Mm -hmm. where obese workers are doing okay or just as well as non-obese workers, what types of occupations are those? And the punchline of my research is that women, even when we control, that is take into account basically everything that we can take into account, what we find is that overweight and obese women are paid less for doing the same job. And they're also less likely to be employed in general. What I found in my research is that the wage penalty is particularly bad for women in public interaction, public facing jobs. That is jobs that ask you to be the face of your company. Uh, Interestingly, though, there's almost no wage penalty and no employment penalty in physical labor and physical activity jobs. And can you give us an example of what a physical activity job or a physical labor job would be like? Sure. So physical labor, physical activity jobs tend to be, you know, hardworking jobs. Typically, they don't pay very well. So a, a good examples of physical activity jobs that that we see um, overweight and obese women in, in particular, are daycare workers, home health aides, Mm -hmm. really hard work, but really hard work that doesn't pay very well. And in fact, what we see, if you look carefully at the data and the kind of jobs that are occupied by particularly obese women and even morbidly obese women, and that means that you would have a body mass index of greater than 40, they're in many ways more likely to be in these jobs. And what the data seems to suggest is that they are in these jobs because they're the only jobs that they can find in the labor market. Which isn't that interesting and and ironic in a way, because it it runs counter to the narrative that's out there, the the, the negative stereotypes that are out there about overweight women or overweight people in general, which is they're less physically able. And yet, given the labor economics, they're being sort of sequestered into low-paying, highly physically demanding arenas of work. That's exactly right. So there is a very strong narrative out there that overweight and particularly obese individuals are not very good workers. They're not as productive. They're not as capable. And look, we all have anecdotes about perhaps somebody we had worked with who couldn't do a particular task because of their weight. Sure. But what we see in the data when we look at workers as a whole is that for the most part, obese and overweight individuals are just as capable of doing these physical labor jobs as the rest of us. And so to the extent right. that we see 
overweight and obese individuals and particularly overweight and obese women doing poorly or relatively poorly in the labor market, it seems to be explained by employers not wanting them to be the face of their company. Straight up discrimination. Yeah, that's exactly right. What economists would call a distaste for obesity. That is, I don't want an obese person around. What's interesting to me is I'm very glad that we live in a world that's increasingly waking up to discrimination and it's become less palatable, less publicly tolerated to discriminate based on gender and obviously race. But discrimination, as we discussed on a recent episode with an ageism expert, discrimination based on age reminds me a little bit about discrimination based on weight in that it's almost feels to me at least like a little more socially acceptable. Like it's not taboo as much as it is, as it were to be taboo about discriminating against someone's skin color, as it is to draw conclusions about an individual based solely upon their weight. Do you feel like that at all? Have you sort of found any indication of that in the research? Absolutely. So there is certainly um, popular opinion would suggest that weight is completely within our control. That is, your weight is totally voluntary. And so as a result, um, and there's lots of psychology research to back this up, people blame others for their weight. What we actually know from the science is that regardless of how you get to your current weight, if you're overweight or obese, what we know from the science is once you become overweight or obese, uh, it is almost impossible to lose that weight in a long-term fashion without doing something drastic like surgery. Um, And so this notion that people are to blame for their weight and even worse, that they're to blame for not losing weight is really just wrong and, and it doesn't stand up next to the current science. I was so thrilled to see this bombshell report finally sort of trending in the New York Times. I think it was last month or the month prior, all about that cavernous dissonance between public opinion on how we perceive obesity and the hard science behind it, which makes the conclusions you just made. Meanwhile, the biggest loser on TV pushes this narrative that if you just really work hard, you can lose the weight and it'll change your life. But the longitudinal studies that have been coming out more recently have shown that is not that simple. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And it speaks to how discrimination and some of the ignorant conclusions people draw based on someone's weight are very misguided and don't add up to the the latest science that we're finding on on what is frankly a pretty widespread phenomenon, especially in the United States, right? Like this is not a, a small per- percentage of our population anymore. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is what we know from the data and some of the subsequent work that I've done is that weight discrimination doesn't seem to be getting any better. So, you know, 20 Mm. years ago, a smaller percent of the U.S. was obese. So it was less common to be obese. Now, particularly in some areas of the country, close to half of the population is is classified as clinically obese based on having a body mass index of greater than 30. Interestingly, even though it's much more common to be obese, people don't seem to be any more sympathetic towards it. And even more bizarre is that, and I guess this is part of the blame game, but, you know, obese individuals don't 
seem to show much more sympathy towards other obese individuals. I think because there's so much blame going around, so much needless blame going around. That's very interesting. And yet at the same time, it sort of aligns with some personal experiences I've had of talking with some of my friends and hearing this sort of internalized blame around weight. It's really alarming and quite sad. So what can we do about this? I know from a legal perspective, you've looked at weight discrimination as it relates to both the American Disabilities Act from 2008 and Title VII, which prohibits discrimination based on sex. Help us understand how those two things are related and where discrimination based on weight might be falling through a legal sort of crack right now. Sure. So there are a handful of jurisdictions in the U.S. that explicitly ban discrimination on the basis of weight. Probably the two biggest jurisdictions in the U.S. where it is illegal are the state of Michigan and Washington, D.C., and then I guess also San Francisco. So there's a handful of cities and, and, and one state, Michigan, where it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of weight. Otherwise, if you live any place else besides one of these handful of cities or any of the other 49 states besides Michigan, wow, there's no explicit protection against weight-based discrimination in the workplace. And so if you think you've been fired because of your weight, at least under federal law, the only option that you have in terms of bringing an employment discrimination suit is to try to characterize weight-based discrimination as either disability discrimination or as gender discrimination. Now, the Americans with Disabilities Act, a lot of weight advocates uh, thought that you know this was, uh, especially when the Americans with Disabilities Act was expanded in 2008, a lot of weight advocates really believe that this was the ticket for workers to claim employment discrimination. So the way that disability is defined in the Americans with Disabilities Act, it doesn't list disabilities that qualify as disabilities. Sure. Uh, Instead, it says if you are substantially limited in a major life activity or if you're regarded as substantially limited, then you're disabled for the purposes of the act. Now, what's happened in reality since 2008 is that we have had several district court decisions finding obesity as a disability for the purposes of the ADA, but we also had several that said, no, it's not a disability. So we've had courts go both ways on the issue. So it's not a slam dunk. Honestly, most of the plaintiffs who have succeeded in bringing an ADA claim, particularly since 2008, have been morbidly obese. That means that they have a body mass index of greater than 40. Just to put that in perspective, mm-hmm. if you're five foot four, that's the height of an average American woman. That means that you weigh at least 280 pounds. So that just sort of puts in perspective what morbidly obese means from a clinical perspective, at least. So most of the plants who've been successful have been clinically classified as morbidly obese. And they've also had a physical restriction that is related to their weight or, or another condition that was associated with their weight. Because we've had several plaintiffs under the ADA since 2008 who, all, who have also not been successful. So it's not clear how satisfying of a remedy that the ADA will ever be for individuals who feel like they've been discriminated against on the basis of weight. 
Not to mention that litigation is like the worker's last option, right? We don't want to have to sue for there to be protections in place. So it certainly seems like there's a legal gray area that's in need of progress on this front, for sure. That's completely true. And it is certainly true in employment discrimination. Look, no one wants to bring any kind of federal lawsuit, but because of both the way you have to file an employment discrimination suit in this country, you have to first go through the EEOC. That's another time suck. And then also the remedies associated with employment discrimination suits are much less generous than other types of federal lawsuits. You really don't want to litigate an employment discrimination suit. One of my favorite anecdotes is I met Lily Ledbetter a couple of years ago. And one of the things that she always talks about is you don't do this for the money. It is so painful and so long. Uh, It is you really have to believe in in what you're doing because it's just so painful to litigate one of these employment discrimination cases. And just for context, Lily Ledbetter, of course, is the woman after whom the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act is named, which was President Barack Obama's very first bill he signed into law back in 09 when he took office in January of 09. Lily Ledbetter was part of a class action fair pay lawsuit. Is that right? Yes. For gender discrimination? Right. She initiated, she was the named plaintiff against Goodyear Tire. And she had been paid less than her male counterparts for doing the exact same job for years and years and years. Right. Unfortunately, she lost her case at the Supreme Court, which is why the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act needed to come into being. So essentially what happened was the question was when she could sue, whether she could sue after her last discriminatory paycheck or whether the relevant decision was uh, when they actually made the discriminatory pay decision years and years before. And the Supreme Court said it was the, from years and years before, the discriminatory pay decision. And a lot of advocates, and of course, Congress didn't like that decision because, frankly, a lot of people don't know when a discriminatory pay decision is made against them until years and years later. And so when President Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act into law, it expanded the statute of limitations for going back and saying, oh, wow, I was being completely discriminated against. I'm going to bring a lawsuit against you That's later right. On. So you're still limited in how far back you can recover. But basically, it allows you to sue any time after your last discriminatory paycheck was issued, right. which opens the door to a lot more fair pay lawsuits. And what's interesting, and actually reminds me of some more historical pay discrimination cases about that issue of weight at work, is this almost reminds me of Kimberly Crenshaw and how she pioneered or really came up with the term intersectionality as it applies to the law. Because, you know, she was using this term to exemplify how there was a gray area that was slipping through the cracks when it came to discrimination based on gender being one thing and then proving discrimination based on race is another thing. And there was no concept available to say, listen, this is not only impacting Black people. It's not only impacting women. This is impacting Black women. And similarly, it almost sounds like there's this loophole or gray area or a lack of acknowledgement in the law around this issue when it comes to weight at work as it intersects with gender at work. And it sounds to me like based on your research, obese women 
are having very different outcomes than obese male counterparts. Can you tell me more about the gender differences in what you're seeing in the in the labor force around obese workers? That's exactly right. So this is a classic case of intersectionality. You know, interestingly, intersectionality uh, and of course Kimberly Crenshaw's work and subsequent work was very humanities-based work. In many ways, I feel like the research that I do is the data behind what they've been saying all along, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what I've argued in my research is in fact that weight is a women's issue. What we see from the data over and over again is women are penalized for their weight in a way that men are not penalized for their weight in the workplace. In fact, what we know from the research is that overweight men actually have the best labor market outcomes even better than normal weight men. Really? Yes. And then obese men, then their outcomes look more like normal weight men. Whereas what we see with women is this increasing discrimination, the heavier it becomes. So overweight women have it worse than normal weight women. Obese women have it worse than overweight women. And morbidly obese women have it really bad in the labor market. Yeah. I'll say this. So To the extent that a plaintiff is able to prove that their employer treats weight in women differently than the employer treats weight in men, then absolutely that plaintiff could have a Title VII gender discrimination claim. The problem is getting that type of proof, right? Because that's what you need to prove your case under current Title VII jurisprudence. I'll also throw this out there as well, because I've done other research on women in health. There's other intersectionalities between women and health. So I have some subsequent research to some of my obesity research, suggesting that disabled women have worse labor market outcomes than disabled men. And so when it comes to women and health, it seems like more often than not, Women may be penalized for both their appearance and their health more often and in a worse way than men are penalized for the same thing. Now, this is all not great news, but it's important news, right? It's really important work that you're doing to illustrate to what extent labor market outcomes are different in this way, whether it's pay, equity, or job opportunities, I want to ask you to go out on a limb here because I know this is not within your typical wheelhouse of thinking from a legal and economic standpoint, but what, if anything, should we be advocating for in this department? How can we improve this situation? How can we advocate from, you know, a legal standpoint, but also internally within our own organizations or on behalf of ourselves if we are overweight or obese or morbidly obese in the job market? What can we do on the personal, professional, and even national level to make this better? Two big things in my mind that we really need to get the message out there. Number one is that weight is a women's issue. Weight is a penalty for women in the workforce in a way that it is not and never has been a penalty for men. Number two is we need to get the message out there that people should not be blamed for their weight. It's not their fault. Right. I think a lot of the resistance, both among 
everyday individuals and even legislators about possibly having weight as a protected class and having more anti-discrimination laws on the basis of weight. Yeah. Is this idea that weight is voluntary and weight is mutable? And traditionally, as we've thought of anti-discrimination laws in this country, we've thought of them as only protecting immutable and involuntary characteristics. Now, I know that that's simply not the case anymore. I mean, religion is a protected class. People can change their religion. Color is a protected class. To some extent, people can change their color. Same thing with gender. I mean, you know, we've seen that things that have were traditionally considered immutable and involuntary, that's really not the case. We live in a brand new world, a brave new world on those friends. That's exactly right. Jennifer, do you know of any advocacy organizations out there who are working to get legislators' minds wrapped around this in the right way? Like, how did these laws get passed in San Fran, D.C., and Michigan? And how do we get more folks and more territories to adopt such policies? Sure. So I will tell you that, interestingly, the organization that's doing the most work on getting the message out that people aren't to blame for their weight and that weight is a women's issue right now are the Obesity Society and the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgeons. Those people are a collection of obesity researchers, obesity PhDs, and MDs who do obesity research. And then the American Society, the ASMBS, they are bariatric surgeons. And the reason that they believe so strongly in the need for advocacy is they see these patients who come to them who are desperate, right. who have no place else to turn, who blame themselves. They don't know what to do about their condition and they are extremely downtrodden. And then on a related note, a lot of times they need medical care and their insurance won't pay for it because their insurance company blames them as well. Wow. Right now, right. those are the two organizations that are doing the most advocacy work. Interestingly, they are not responsible for the handful of city and state laws. Those actually came much earlier and were laws that were ahead of their time. Each has kind of a a different and unique story. I'll tell you the one about San Francisco. So when the San Francisco law was passed, it was because a very prominent billboard was posted in the middle of San Francisco by a gym that had an alien on it. And it said, when they come, they'll eat the fat ones first. Wow. Because, you know, it's San Francisco and uh, people are more open-minded, I think, traditionally in San Francisco than other areas of the country. That sparked a series of protests that eventually led to that law being passed. I would say the probably the most interesting and most ahead of its time is the Michigan law. That law was actually passed in the 1970s by a very forward-thinking grassroots organizer who was elected to the Michigan State Legislature. And he said that in his grassroots work, he had seen too many overweight women being passed over for jobs that they deserve. And he made that connection back in the 1970s. And that's why the law in Michigan is on the book. I love that. I'm going to link to the organizations you did mention in our show notes today. 
And I'm also just realizing how a lot of like my peers and a lot of our community members here at Bossed Up identify themselves as feminists. Mm -hmm. And if we're out there advocating on behalf of women's rights, we ourselves need to be more vocal about this and how weight is a women's issue is something we can all sort of take with us in our everyday feminism. So I appreciate that illustration and, and also think that whatever weight you identify with, right, or wherever you are on the BMI scale, you know, knowing if you do have thin privilege or are perceived as thin by other people like myself, that we can do more as feminists to make that connection between gender discrimination and weight discrimination and advocating on behalf of women means advocating on behalf of women of all sizes. So I'm trying to walk the walk here and figure that out as we go here at Boss Up and how we can be more intersectional in that regard. So I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your insights and expertise in this way. That's exactly right. And I'll add this, you know, we know from the Me Too movement that there is explicit discrimination against women going on in the labor market. There are still jobs right. where bosses say highly inappropriate, obviously gender-based things to women. But I actually think that even though that still exists, more of what exists in the labor market are these implicit stereotypes against women. And a big one of those is weight. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for helping us break that down. I think you're spot on. I'm so excited to keep in touch with you and, and hear more about the research you have on the horizon as we continue to bring this issue to the forefront. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week. My name is Danielle, and I have two Boss Moves for this past year that I'm super proud of and wanted to share. The first is I started my own boutique PR agency, and we specifically are devoted to getting press for minority and women-owned businesses. So that's a big win. And also, I gave birth to my first child this year. So 2018 has been a year of blessings and boss moves. And it's just something I wanted to share and put out there. And maybe another girl will have the same kind of influence and motivation to do the same things in both her personal and professional life. Get it, boss. We are cheering you on and thanking you so much for calling in to share your come up story. You really never know who you're inspiring when you choose to call in and share your achievements. So if you've got a boss move that you've made any time in the last year, really, and you want to share it with our community, we're waiting to hear from you. Give my hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And now, boss, I want to hear from you. Have you ever thought about thin privilege in the way that we discussed it on today's episode? How does weight impact work in your life? Or has today's episode or this conversation made you think differently about how you might be judging others unconsciously, especially as more research comes out about overweight Americans and how hard it is to lose the weight, no matter what kind of discipline and hard work and energy and effort you're putting into that? I really do wonder if that changing narrative in the research will slowly but surely help us chip away at stigma, at stereotyping, at unconscious bias, or even conscious bias against people of different body weights. So I'd love to hear from you. What did you take away from this episode? Do you think this is important? Do you want more people to hear it? If so, take a moment to share today's episode 
far and wide so we can get the word out about how weight is in fact a women's issue and how it might be impacting our career prospects and the career prospects of people we know and love to a far greater extent than we might have previously realized. You can share your comments, questions, and concerns in the comments section at today's corresponding blog post on the Bossed Up blog, which I'll link to below, or take a screenshot of today's episode, share your thoughts, and tag me on social media at Emily Aries and at BossedUp.org. In the meantime, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose, and together, we'll continue to lift as we climb.
let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.